a rooster. Good morning, Alison. Good morning, Sarah. In fact, I recorded this particular rooster in the afternoon, not in the morning. Right, and it's not the morning now either. Indeed, yeah. that's true <laughs> as well. Uh, this week I met a group of Gaulois Doré roosters on a farm in Méry-sur-Seine. That's about... 150 kilometers southeast of Paris. Okay. All right. Roosters. So mm. <laughs> why were you doing that? Yeah, it's not something I do every week. Mm. Well, as you know, many countries have their national animal, don't ah. they? Yeah, the US has a bald eagle. In Mali, it's a hippopotamus. Mm. England, a lion. Russia, a brown bear. China, of course, a panda. Germany, an eagle. And France? Ah, Okay. Must be a rooster. It is a rooster. Yes, we see them everywhere. Yeah, it is a rooster. And it's not just any old rooster. Right. It's this breed, the Gaulois Doré. It has this, you know, bombed out chest and a very flamboyant, shiny, metallic black kind of feathery tail, uh, golden breast, very bright red comb um, and a wattle, which is the thing that hangs sort of under its chin. It's very eye-catching and rather majestic looking. Proud, feisty, combative, and sporty—all those lovely terms come mm, to mind. French sounds French, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> but it isn't, in fact, a French bird. Ah. No, like all poultry, it originated in Asia, and it's a descendant of the red jungle fowl, which was domesticated most probably in Thailand in around 6,000 BC. The animal was imported into France around 2,000 years ago and was very quickly adopted because its Latin name is Gallus. Gallus, which translates as both cockerel and inhabitant of Gaul. Ah, and Gauls being a Celtic tribe and one of the ancestors of the French. Exactly. So the link between this chicken and France was very quickly planted in people's minds, including at the time Julius Caesar. Now, the bird is quite small, but it's very hardy, energetic. It thrived and so did its reputation. Roosters really took off, as it were, and they can fly, by the way. During the French Revolution, they were identified with popular revolt. And then during World War I, they were seen as a symbol of France's resistance and bravery against the Prussian eagle. The roosters symbolized a people with peasant origins, very proud, self-opinionated, courageous, and, of course, very numerous. (laughs) Gaulois Doré roosters used to be found all over the French countryside and the sound of this particularly vocal breed could be heard at daybreak and in the afternoon and in the evening. So you say used to be. I did, Mm. because this very emblematic bird is in decline. Ah, so what happened? Well, after World War II, France had to feed its population, but the occupying Germans had, you know, basically uh, depleted farm stocks. The Gaulois rooster just wasn't productive enough because uh, he takes nine months to reach maturity and then the female lays around 150 eggs a year, which is around half of that of some other breeds. In those post-war years, the U.S. introduced more productive breeds to France and gradually those little red hens, the ones that are far more suited to industrial farming methods than the wild Gaulois Doré, took over. But, and it's a big but, a small and tenacious bunch of people in France are determined to make sure France's oldest breed of chicken not only survives, but thrives. I'm fighting for this animal because it's our heritage and it's a strong French symbol, even if the state doesn't officially recognise it, says Damien Vidard. 
Vidar used to be in the army. He then worked as a mechanic, a gardener, and he's now an ambassador for the Gaulois Doré. In 2021, he set up the Conservatoire du Coq Gaulois, a conservatory housed on an educational farm in the village of Mery sur seine where he breeds and promotes the roosters. I went along to meet him and his very vocal flock. Damien Vidar holds out a little white stone and a flock of Gaulois doré hens move towards him. There are over a hundred birds on this 1.5 hectare farm and they're quick to communicate. I'm trying to record the sound of one of these amazing French roosters and of course the minute I stick the... Oh, here we, here we go. Again, please. It's a form of communication. Roosters have to crow. If they don't, it means they're ill. They interact with the hens and they're also telling their rivals that they exist. They have to crow at least once a day. Some grumble more than others, of course, just like humans. <laughs> He shows me one of the aviaries with four roosters and 30 hens. One particularly fine male is parading around the coop. His burnished golden and russet feathers around his neck and back seem to glisten in the light, while the rays bring out the metallic blue tinge of those on his chest. It all contributes to the charm factor. A rooster can cater to 10 hens, depending on how active he is. It's a dynamic race, combative, athletic, proud. The Gallic rooster is meant to have a curved chest, and this one is a fine example. Here he is, the, the French rooster, almost putting his shoulders back in this very uh, proud way. Another characteristic we tend to forget is their elegance. France, and especially Paris, is renowned for being stylish, and the Gallic rooster is an elegant backyard bird with its plumage, colour and presence. That's why it takes part in beauty contests. Contests are feasible because official standards for the breed were laid down exactly 100 years ago. Vidar takes me inside the breeding area to meet the seven-year-old cock that's won the best Gallic rooster prize three times now. It's about the details. The eyes have to be a reddy orange. Their comb must be regular and straight. The earlobes as white as possible. Despite his age, you can still see they're still very white. And then there's a statue. The chest has to be plumped up. He mustn't be too small has to weigh around 2.5 kilos. The standards are quite specific. A wobbly comb, coarse bone structure and the presence of puffiness will all lose you points. It's like Miss France. She has to be attractive, have a certain height and weight. The criteria are also very selective. Now they're really, yeah. Vidar's enthusiasm for the Gauloise Doré began in 2010 at the Paris Agricultural Fair, where he saw them in one such beauty pageant. It was his second date with Nicola, now his wife, who is also an animal lover. They went home with a male and female, but when some years later they went looking for new blood to avoid inbreeding, they couldn't find any. 
In 2017, shortly after Emmanuel Macron became president, Vida heard Stéphane Bern, a famous French historian and heritage expert, was launching a campaign to preserve French monuments. Stéphane Bern and Emmanuel Macron gave me the idea when they decided to launch this census to identify heritage in danger. They were talking about castles and churches and rolled out operations to save them. Those churches are now being restored. I said to myself, there is living heritage as well, and the Gullic rooster has to be preserved. I decided I wanted to do it. Vidal had no idea how many Gaulois Doré there were, so he set off on a tour of France to count them. He's now on his sixth census, though thankfully he's no longer working alone. That first year we identified just 22 owners of the breed, but by 2021 we'd gone to 250, and some of those people are breeding and selling them. There's now a strong interest in the Galois Doré. He and his team of 12 came back with strains of the different Galois Doré families from all over France, and that's now an important part of what the Conservatoire is doing, making sure that the breed can be as robust as ever by avoiding inbreeding. Vidar takes me to an area where small groups of hens and roosters have been isolated to breed, and the eggs will be then sorted. Three beautiful black Gaulois, a rooster and two hens, are in a pen together. One hen is nesting on her egg, while the other two appear to be flirting. Vidal shows me a tray of white eggs, which he will later scan to see if they've been fertilised or not. The chickens are all ringed with numbers and colour codes, so he knows which family of hens laid the eggs. He aims to have around 100 chicks to be able to create as wide a selection as possible. While there's increasing interest from breeders in France and collectors abroad in countries like Turkey, Romania and in North Africa, conserving the Gaulois Doré is a labour of love. There's little money to be made. He sells the rooster chicks for just 30 euros or so. He's hoping for a bit more institutional encouragement. As breeders, we really only get support if the animal is from the local area or region, whereas the Gallic rooster is a national race. It doesn't have a birthplace in France. So no department or region can claim the animal as its own. Only the state can help. Which is why he went right to the top and wrote to Emmanuel Macron a couple of times, but all to no avail. It would be helpful and give us more visibility if the rooster were recognised as an official French symbol like the flag, Marianne, our national motto. It would be a nice gesture if it were recognised as national heritage. But for the moment it remains an attractive backyard chicken brought to public attention through sport. If it hadn't been for sport, I think these Gullock roosters would have disappeared altogether. So it sounds like uh, he needs an influencer or something like that, right? <laughs> to get on board and get the word out about this rooster. Yeah, I do feel that. He, <laughs> he and I wish I could help him. Uh, he, maybe our program will help him. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Yeah. He and the dozen or so regional reps are working their socks off mm. to get this thing uh, going a bit, a bit faster, if you like. They're soldiering on and the conservatory and education 
vocational farm are well supported by the local council. So that's good news. They're really hoping that they can get live roosters, for example, onto the pitch at the start of a rugby match and at next year's Olympics. Yeah, right, because rugby, the symbol is a rooster, right? So that could help. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And football and uh, and next year's Olympics as well. It'll be absolutely covered in cockerels. (laughs) And as the rooster already features in the Hall of Mirrors at the Chateau de Versailles, well, Vidar reckons it would make sense for there to be a rooster roaming in those vast Ah. gardens. Do get on the loose? <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad idea yeah. when you think of it, though, bringing a bit of rural France into such a lavish palace. They can live up to 12 years old, by the way, so it could become quite a feature. And the gates don't open till about 10 a.m., so no one would be bothered by its wake-up call. <laughs> It's award season here in France. Well, at least if you're a writer. So there's the Prix Goncourt Literary Prize that was announced earlier this month. This year, it went to French novelist and film director Jean-Baptiste Andréa for his fourth book, Veillez sur elle. That means watch over her. Yeah, yeah. And on Monday, there'll be the Prix Albert Londres. Which is a prize for journalists. Yeah, yeah. It's sometimes called the French Pulitzer. It's for the best journalists under the age of 40. And it's named after a journalist. Jessica Phelan is here to tell us about him. Hi, Jess. Hi, Alison. Hi, Sarah. Hi. So Albert Londres himself is a fascinating guy. He's considered one of the founders of investigative journalism in France. Okay, so when did he start? Well, he was born in 1884 and he got his big break during World War I. He made his name with an eyewitness account of the bombing of Reims Cathedral in 1914. But he didn't actually report that much on France, right? He's best known as a foreign correspondent. Yeah, that's right. He went all over the world, really. The Balkans, the Middle East, the Soviet Union, right after it was formed. China, Japan, the Congo. Hmm, It's just making me think of Tintin, Tintin, the the famous young cartoon journalist. Yeah, exactly. So Avalanche is actually thought to be one of the inspirations for the Tintin character. Ah. Um, But his work was a lot more serious than Tintin's adventure. Some of his most famous reports were on the French penal colony in Cayenne. That's off the coast of French Guiana in South America. And it was known as Devil's Island. So Londres went there and described these absolutely inhuman conditions that really shocked the public and put the authorities on the defensive. Oh, it sounds like he was a bit of on a mission to, to expose injustice. Yeah, yeah, very much so. He mm. He also wrote about... Psychiatric asylums, forced laborers, sex workers who'd been trafficked, um, a guy who'd been wrongly convicted. He said that he wanted to give a voice to the voiceless. That does sound quite modern. Yeah, that's the the interesting thing. Londres is still an inspiration to many French journalists today. Claire Meignal is a correspondent for the magazine Le Point in the US, and she says she became a journalist partly because of reading Londres. So I asked her what she had learned from his work. The value of fieldwork, nothing can ever replace traveling somewhere and talking to people and understanding whether they're hungry, disappointed, sad, angry 
talking to people. There, there's nothing that can replace that. Claire actually won the Alberlon Prize in 2016 for her reporting from West Africa. And she says the jury told her it was because of the way she empathised with the people she interviewed. That's not exactly how news is reported on today in the sense that, you know, we're just trying to get what happened out as soon as possible. Yeah, definitely. That's that's something Claire said she thought about a lot when she was reporting in Africa and, and was thinking back to what Londres had written there. Most of all, he wrote about the construction of the Congo Ocean train, which is in Congo from Brazzaville to Pointe Noire. Uh, it really stuck with me. When you ride that train, you can see how difficult the terrain is, the trees, the, the, the forest, the, uh, the mud everywhere. And he sort of describes how forests were very little paid workers were working with their bare hands, uh, being beaten by, by the white colonial, you know, bosses. And I remember thinking how much time you needed to report correctly on this. And I think Albalon's whole work reflects a bygone era when it was okay to take time to do good journalism. And obviously, that's the opposite of what a lot of journalists have to do now with breaking news. So what happened to Albert Londres in the end? Well, that's another fascinating story in itself. So he had been reporting in China and he said that he'd uncovered something dynamite. But when he was on his way back to France to write it up, the ship that he was on caught fire and he was killed. And the only other people he'd talked to about the story died in a plane crash. Oh, my goodness. Curious and curious. Yeah. And so there's this prize named after him. When was that set up? Very soon after his death by his daughter, Florise. Um, Abelant died in 1932, and the first prize was awarded one year later. So this year's prize will be the 90th one. So the holidays are coming, lots of shopping on the horizon. Mm, been seeing lots of Black Friday sales popping up all over the place here. Ugh, yeah, I feel uh, like, I mean, I've rant, I think I've ranted about this before. Yeah, <laughs> Black Friday in France, what is this? I mean, it's supposed to be, what, the day after Thanksgiving, you go shopping. There's not even Thanksgiving here. <laughs> they'll, bring, they'll introduce it, don't worry. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, well, as people are looking for gifts, it's not all stores with, with new stuff, though. No, that's absolutely true. A lot of used clothing stores have popped up in and around Paris. And then there's these online platforms. Yeah, Vinted is a big one. It's a Lithuanian company, actually, but really big here in France. People use it to sell and buy their used clothes and objects and and use it as a platform to connect each other that way. Yeah, I've I've found myself getting hooked in a little bit, Mm. Uh, but it is mainly for buying rather big, expensive branded stuff. For my kids, ah. uh, it does turn out to be a, a wee bit cheaper secondhand. Thank goodness. Yeah, yeah, and you're not the only one to do this. And increasingly, people are finding that they can give their used items a second life and make a bit of money by using this platform. Mm. Traditional charity shops like Emmaüs, which has a vast network of secondhand stores in France, um, and they use the income for back-to-work schemes. They've actually seen the amount of quality donations, so like stuff that's in good enough shape to actually be sold. They've seen a drop from 60% to 40% just in the last two years. Mm, sounds like people are holding back their good stuff to then try and sell it. Absolutely. And and while this might be good news for people's pocketbooks and the exchange of used 
goods, possibly is very likely good for the planet. It's not all roses. Eva Serio, who teaches marketing at the business school at the University of Angers, focuses her research on secondhand practices in France. And she's documented this shift from thrift store donations to selling online. And also for those buying, she's seen taboos against wearing secondhand clothing lifting in France. Mm. Younger people in particular are drawn to thrift stores like Emmaüs to find unique clothing. Today, we are seeing Gen Z that is going to uh, Emmaüs shop uh, because they want to find like piece that is not the same than anyone else. They want to differentiate themselves from other consumers. And so they are going to this kind of shop to find this piece. Right. Like, whereas before you would shop at these charity shops, maybe because you had no other choice, now it becomes this way of finding a unique thing. But you're saying in the way of selling, though, that so people are getting rid of their things, they're not donating, they're selling, they're going on these platforms. Many consumers say they resell for eco-friendly reasons, but when we really observe their behaviors, then tend to be more consumerist than ecological. They like to play the merchant. They behave like real marketers sometimes, uh, with beautiful pictures, with customer relations strategies. So instead of saying like, you know, I'm selling this because it's better for the environment, it's better for you to buy the shirt from me than it is from like H&M or whatever it is where it's new. But you're saying they're kind of turning into little stores themselves. The first reason is to make money. Uh, to rebuy other things. So it's like a fashion budget they made for rebuying other piece of clothes of, or other items. So it's not like they're consuming less. No, they are not consuming less. For this kind of uh, profile, some of them telling me that they buy more than before because it's secondhand clothes. And it's for economic reason, but also for fun. So, so we're talking here, obviously, about very young people partly because of the platform and the technology of it. I mean, does it tend to skew young? Is that where the future of secondhand and used things are coming? Or are we also seeing a shift in, you know, our older people maybe turning towards um, either buying or selling things or getting rid of things secondhand? Is there a, a consciousness of needing to reuse and repurpose things on that level? So I think that Gen X is really enjoying donating. So they are not making the change to digital platforms. Uh, they like free markets. They like exchanges with their neighborhood, their families, and they want to help people. So they used to um, give to charities and they don't want to stop that. Millennials are more paradoxical. They are pulled between um, saving the planet <laughs> by uh, using second-hand practices and helping people by giving, but also enjoying the use of uh, Vinted or Le Bon Coin. Do you shop secondhand or do you give away or sell things? Like, what's your relationship to secondhand clothes or objects? Yes, I come from a family, a father especially, that did every flea market of the weekend. So selling and buying. So I really wanted to to explore this practice and to explore the behaviors on that. Um, and so I did a lot of reselling things. Then I tried vintage, but now today 
I think that working on this field and seeing the dark side of uh, resailing, I don't want to use it anymore. And also when I interviewed again my interviewees, they were saying me that they are closing their Vinted accounts uh, because they don't want to use it anymore. You say there's a dark side of it. So elaborate a little bit about what that dark side is. So we have two different kind of dark side. The first one is this too much work that you need to do to make great money on Vinted. You, you need to uh, be connected each day uh, to have beautiful photos, to have fashionable items, etc. So it's, um, it means a lot in your daily life. Some of them told me that they were like addicted. And the other dark side is more social with the exchange between people themselves. So, for example, between a seller and a buyer, it can go to a dispute and sometimes with uh, people that are rude. So it's another dark side that came for people to stop using these kind of apps. So on, for me, on a personal level, I have little ch little kids and I have actually used Le Bon Coin in particular, which actually you can find people close by to you to both buy and sell or get rid of like kids items because you go through them so quickly. And it's kind of interesting to see that that shift because I do remember even a few years ago, I would much more say if there was a flea market in the neighborhood, I would go and dig through a pile of onesies or whatever it is and there have been fewer and fewer of those things. And you see them then more and more showing up on Le Bon Coin or like community Facebook groups of people trading them amongst each other. And it's interesting to see how that's just anecdotal, but you're seeing that that's actually something that's just been happening fairly recently. And on the community local Facebook group, we are seeing an increase of them. So we can see each other in face-to-face, -face, exchange and create like a little community of uh, selling, donating, rebuying. So I suppose you have both sides to you have both the sort of fashion side of things, but you also have the sort of everyday use side of things, which is kids clothes or, or even furniture or things like that. You're saying that, that there might be now a shift back to the bricks and mortar, like go back to the charity shops. Yeah. Many more consumers go to these kind of shops to buy items, clothes, but also furniture for their homes. And there's not so much a stigma involved of buying something used or this this stigma about oh no it's like for the poor people and also the stigma about the contamination the perceived contamination of the items uh, before like 10 years ago people were like wow i don't want to use um an, a piece of cloth that has already been um used before i've even heard somebody say i don't want to wear something that maybe you know used to belong to a dead person yeah. like super superstitions there yes but not now. Yeah, there is some of them that are really reluctant, but the majority of people don't think of that anymore. I guess the question in all this is ultimately, right, buying and getting rid of things that aren't new is supposed to be green, right? It's supposed to be better for the planet. In your observations, is that actually true? Well, I assume yes, um, because even if we have a lot of carbon emission with the logistic of sending packs with Vinted and Le Boucoin, etc., we have always saving in carbon emissions. You mean like the emissions of just sending a little package between individuals is less than the emissions of making these brand new clothes in the first place? Yes, it's always a better choice 
to buy a second-hand product than to buy first-hand products, even if you buy more second-hand products. But what we need to be careful about is the quality of the product that we buy. In order to have second-hand or third or fourth life, we need to have better quality product at the first place. So it's changed also the, the way we are producing and we are creating products. Now, Sarah, we've talked on the podcast before, haven't we, about ultra-fast fashion mm -hmm. and the, the pull of cheap clothes. What's interesting to see is that some clothing brands have actually launched their own second-hand shops. Yeah, yeah, you see like Petit Bateau, which is a kid's brand, has been doing this. They collect the clothes, they recondition them and sell them. Zara, another you know fast fashion uh, mainstream brand, launched a second-hand platform here in France in September. Um, so second-hand is on the rise. But there are real questions about what this will do to the solidarity sector. Because remember, Emmaüs, besides recuperating old things and reselling them, it also provides jobs for people who are struggling to get back in the workforce, formerly homeless people, for example. And so a drop in donations means a drop in revenue. This means the model could be under threat. So it's always a give and take, isn't it? So we've come to the end of the show. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Donatien Cahus. If you want to write to us, we're at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France, also on rfienglish.com. And if you like the show, please, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us five stars. It actually really does help to grow the podcast. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, December the 7th. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye,